10, verses 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Lakeshore, and thank you for this opportunity. It is a gift to be back with you this morning, a place that I often call my second church, my home away from home. I'm the kind of person who probably needs two or three churches, so it's good to have them. Thank you, Ross, for your leadership. Thank you for what you have meant to this place, to those of us at Calvary and at Baylor, for all that you do and for who you are. You are a gift to so many of us. As we read this parable this morning, like most of Jesus' parables, this gospel reading has seen innumerable interpretations, readings, and misreadings. Some are entertaining. Some make you scratch your head. Origen was perhaps one of the first and most well-known allegorical readings where he says that the priest in the story represented the failings of the law to save us, the Levite, the failings of the prophets, and Jesus is to be interpreted as the Samaritan, the wounds or human disobedience, and the end where he is taken is the church. And the Samaritan's return 
is an announcement of Jesus' own second coming. Well, parables aren't meant to be read as allegories. Not every element is meant to be that metaphorical. That's just not the nature of these stories. They are much more simple, much more straightforward. Even so, there are several ways to interpret this kind of story. Some who read this parable describe it as a story of individual evangelism. Some read it as a story of social justice. For many, it is a simple story of compassion. That is truth enough. The parable of the Good Samaritan is what we often call it. The title we have added to the text is a layer of interpretation not included in the story itself. And that reference to a good Samaritan shows some implicit bias that most Samaritans are not good, which would likely have been the crowd's response, given that Samaritans were despised by the Jews as being impure as a people, half Jewish and half Gentile. When the northern kingdoms of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians, they intermarried and settled in a place called Samaria, just north of Judea. And as usually happens in such cases, they adopted the worship of the local culture, and that was seen to be offensive to the Jews. And so by the Jewish people, the Samaritans as a whole were often seen as more detestable even than their current Roman conquerors. In this parable, Jesus asks us to love our neighbor, even the ones we have hated. And if the despised outcast can show mercy, so can we. And in the story, the writer of Luke challenges us socially as well as personally. Today, there are so many ways to read this story. There are so many neighbors in need of our simple love, our gift of compassion, our mercy. There are opportunities to do this personally, day in and day out in our lives. And socially, we don't have to look beyond our own border to see the need for a, a true neighbor. This summer, I've made a commitment to read the writings of African-American scholars and writers. And one writer I came across is a Baptist scholar, Dr. Lewis Brogdon. He's written a recent reflection on Luke, highlighting the references to rich and poor that are found throughout this third of the synoptic gospels, as they're called. Meaning that, that while Luke has much in common with Matthew and Mark, one of its differences is this narrative theme of rich and poor. There's a reference to the rich young ruler, a certain rich man, a parable of a rich landowner. Mary's Magnificat makes reference to rich and poor, as does the story of Zacchaeus. And there are several others that highlight this theme. Dr. Brogdon brings another lens to the gospel theme, he writes about a socio-political context 
of the first century and the relationship between Roman imperialism and the suffering caused by their occupation of Israel. The oppressive nature of the Roman rule of Israel at the time is the deeper reason why Luke gives attention to certain marginalized groups of people. Dr. Brogdon writes, Luke offers a critique of a system that exploits and crushes people. Even when the poor and rich are not mentioned directly, Luke addresses other groups who are on the margins of society, such as people who are sick, women, and their abundant examples of Jesus' care for the downcast throughout Luke. His cleansing of a leper, healing a paralytic, and a man with a withered hand, his forgiving of a woman caught in sin, his raising of a widow's son and Jairus' daughter, his feeding of 5,000, his story of the Good Samaritan that illustrates the importance of helping anyone in need. Brogdon offers a rereading of Luke's gospel in light of the privileges, systemic injustice, afford some and deny others. Luke's Jesus announced and proclaimed the gospel in response to an unjust world that produces suffering. And so Dr. Brogdon concludes, so too must our interpretations speak to these same issues today. In other words, to faithfully interpret Luke means to reflect upon the privileges white Americans have gained from centuries of systemic oppression, slavery, and segregation. And to ask hard questions of what Luke's gospel, Luke's Jesus, asks of us today. One such approach to Luke, one that reflects upon the role of race, is found in the 1972 collection of essays, The Tragedy of the Moon, by Isaac Asimov. Asimov was a biochemist and a science fiction writer of over 500 books and stories, who had very little to say about Christianity or the Gospels, but published an essay entitled lost in non-translation, where he provides commentary on this parable of the Good Samaritan. He says that most discussions of the parable fail to take into account the utter disdain the Jews had for the Samaritans and how difficult it would have been to hear that the Samaritan could be a compassionate, merciful neighbor. Asimov invites us to hear the story as if it were set in 1950s Alabama and asks us to imagine a white southern gentleman left on the side of the road for dead. And after his mayor walks by and his preacher walks by, a black sharecropper stops to help. 
to carry him to safety, to pay for his care out of his meager earnings, and to leave extra support for needs as they arrive, spending all that he has. It can be difficult for us today to own the extent to which we participate in the racism that still exists in our society. But there's no denying that in this 1950s context, what would have happened in a Jim, era, Jim Crow era police lineup that included a white mayor, a white pastor, and a black sharecropper if the story were turned? And instead of asking who is the neighbor, the crowd and the lawyer were to be asked who would be guilty of the crime that left the gentleman this way. And if readers were quick to judge the imagined guilt of a man, then how can we possibly turn around and imagine him as our beloved neighbor? And so how today do we wrestle with our own implicit biases as we read this story? As was often the case in Jesus' teachings, he doesn't just ask what is wrong with how things are, but how much different ought things be in the kingdom of God. Lakeshore, my church, Calvary, most of us progressives in Baptist life like to see ourselves as good neighbors. And we work hard to be that way. Or at least as not being biased against our neighbors. We work hard to be on the right side of history. You have demonstrated that time and time again as a community. You have paid the price for your actions of justice. Several of us at Calvary admire and even envy your stances that you take, your prophetic witness, globally and locally. However, when we are honest, many of us can see how we are still part of systems that require much more work. And considerations of race is a system where that is still true. One framework that we use in the Garland School of Social Work is Kimberly Williams Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality. Intersectionality is a perspective that helps us see how race and gender and different aspects of our identity work together to reinforce discrimination and oppression. Crenshaw tells of the 1976 court case de Graffenreid versus General Motors, highlighting discriminatory hiring in the auto industry. White women could access office jobs, black men, technical and industrial jobs, but this industry, like most, was most discriminating against women of color against black women. And from this, she began to do more work to highlight how is that often true and how does that continue to be true for women of color in our society. 
A colleague has recently published a critique of intersectionality and followed with an argument about how sad it is that white men are often discriminated now in our society. For me, intersectionality isn't about creating guilt for white men. It is about giving me helpful language for more fully loving my neighbor. The value of intersectionality is in giving me a lens for self-reflection. It helps me make sense of my own identity. It helps me see how I have benefited in our society as a white male. Throughout my time in social work education, I've been on a journey of looking at my heritage, my family experiences, my own decisions and opportunities, and the unearned advantages I personally have had. It is too often the case that I am seen as someone with knowledge or expertise, power to make decisions, even when it comes to matters outside of my role or field or position. Privilege and power often work together in my experience. Learning what these experiences mean is what Peggy McIntosh of Wellesley College described 30 years ago as unpacking the invisible backpack of white privilege that many of us carry around. She described how she was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness, not in invisible systems conferring dominance on my group. The invisible systems mean that we who are white often have access to many elements of privilege that we might not readily recognize. Perhaps you have heard the list that she came up with. I experience privilege if I... I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can avoid spending time with people who I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust me. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area I can afford and in which I would want to live. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely and positively represented. When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. That was her list of white privilege 30 years ago. How true is it still today? As a father of teenagers now, I see how these experiences are passed down. And I can look across the generations to see what these mean in my family. Recently, the African-American principal at my son's high school acknowledged that when seeing our son walk out of school early, skipping, he assumed he had little reason to worry. He associated his whiteness with responsibility. 
It became clear to that principal and to me that privilege is what allows my son to walk off campus with no consequences when his classmates of color undergo much more scrutiny. I can look back at the ways my father and grandfather received social and economic benefits for education, housing, purchases that have added to the collective wealth of our family and that they know were denied to the people of color in their surrounding communities, particularly since the East Texas community where we are from was white only for far too many years. In my own experience, I can see how multi-generational privilege abounds. I know I am part of a culture of systems and institutions where I benefit from whiteness and can almost always choose to ignore race in my life. And as a result, my way of being in the world continues moving me forward while my colleagues of color have to manage race and gender as part of their experience at church, at work, in most settings, and in more settings than we care to acknowledge. This is a part of what Beverly Daniel Tatum describes as the moving walkway of racism. Moving walkways that move us forward like those at airports, like the flat escalators. They provide an analogy for how racism works in America. Racism continues to move forward in society. Most of us know it is wrong, so we try to make choices that are non-racist, but it's like not walking on a moving walkway. The system moves forward, perpetuating how society works for some and against others. We are still moving forward on these racist systems. We can close our eyes, but we're still moving in the same systems. The only decision that works is to stop, turn around, and actively walk in the other direction. Tatum calls this being anti-racist. Being non-racist in white culture changes very little. I'm learning that I have to find ways to be anti-racist. I have to wrestle with the ways that I still support racism. I have to move past the guilt, the fragility of my own experience. I have to remember that a part of privilege means I can choose not to think about these things. And I can do so in ways that my black and brown friends and colleagues cannot. However, my not thinking about race does not end racism, does not stop white supremacy. It is a symptom of it. As Leila Sa'ad, the author of White Supremacy and Me, says, you cannot change your white skin color to stop receiving these privileges, just like I cannot change my black skin color to stop receiving racism. But what you can do is wake up to what is really going on, challenge your complicity in the system, and work to dismantle it within yourself and the world. 
This is what it means to be a good neighbor. It is not enough to say we love our neighbor. To say that we aren't that way. That we are not racist. Or that we have black friends. We have to wake up and actively engage our society in anti-racist efforts that challenge white privilege and white supremacy. How do we wake up to this reality? How do I wake up to this challenge? These are the questions that are challenging me and inspiring me these days. And waking up is truly a metaphor that makes the most sense to me in these conversations. The colloquial notion of being woke should be a verb as well as a noun. Just as we can never say that we are culturally competent because there's always more to know, we are never truly woke. We are at best being awakened. It is a deep slumber that we are in, that I am in, and it is a significant task to be woke, to continually wake up to the daily ways that being a white male is at work in my life and to the ways I have failed my neighbors as a result of these things. For me, this work has created a sense of responsibility for addressing white supremacy and the society of which I am a part. And a commitment to work for justice and to love my neighbors in new ways at church, at work, at home. I may not have created racism, but I know I benefit from it still. And as theologian Dorothy Serler writes, I am responsible for the house I did not build, but occupy. And so, in taking this responsibility, May we seek to find out more and more what it truly means to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.